When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I come from a period of music when uh, solo players was really a thing. I mean, I remember going and seeing uh, James Taylor in 1969, I think it was, or something. He was just solo, you know, and he'd be great. He was a great guitar player. He had really good songs with his first couple of albums, and he was great. Or you'd see John Hammond Jr. solo, and he'd be rocking the house, stopping his foot and blowing this incredible harmonica while he played 12-string guitar, and he was great, you know. Uh, I saw Dave Van Ronk. I saw Laura Nero play solo. I saw Lightning Hopkins play solo. Welcome to Behind the Set List podcast where artists tell the stories about the songs they perform live. I'm Jay Gilbert from Label Logic. And I'm Glenn Peoples from Billboard. In this episode, we talk to Peter Case, longtime troubadour, bluesman, folk artist. Uh, Jay, you've been a fan for a long time, going back to his days with the Plimsolls, if not earlier. Yeah, probably a little earlier with the Nerves back in the uh, mid-70s. And then, of course, you know, the Plimsolls. Um, big fan of his whole entire career. Uh, I learned a lot from this conversation. Um, one thing which is pretty funny is right now he doesn't really need to create a set list. He can just go to a performance and he's got such a big body of work that he, sometimes he just plays. Yeah, we, we did talk about some of the venues he plays and there are small, intimate places he can change the set list as needed, as desired. And um, being the solo musician, just him and the guitar is one thing he did talk about. It was really interesting. And also him and a piano, as we've heard from his new album, Dr. Moan. Yeah, in fact, at the end of his set list, at least the show that we looked at, five of the last six songs were from Dr. Moan, uh, which is a really uh, piano-oriented album. And another thing that we talked to him about is this wonderful documentary uh, that uh, has recently uh, come out called A Million Miles Away. Uh, And he tells his story and it's it's fascinating. Yeah, I really loved it, um, as you did. And I think anybody could watch this and enjoy it and learn a lot. You don't have to be a Peter Case fan. It helps. But I think you you look at this and you get a you get a good look at a really fascinating person, a great musician. Yeah, yeah. So without further ado, here's Peter Case on Behind the Set List. Let it roll. Peter Case, thanks for joining Behind the Set List. Good to be here. You know, uh, 
Jay and I watched this wonderful documentary about your life and, and your career uh, called Million Miles Away, uh, the title of one of your best-known songs. And the movie traced your early days in New York and then to San Francisco and then forming the nerves and then to the plimsolls, all leading to a long solo career. And I'm wondering what it was like to watch that movie and view this summary of your career in music. Well, the first time I saw it, I had a dog on my lap. I, my dog was, uh, I stuck my dog into the theater. And so my dog was, couldn't believe how big I looked on the screen. <laughs> and uh, she got kind of upset. So I had to leave it at, <laughs> at a certain point and go outside with her. So I didn't see some of it. But then I saw the whole thing on a um, DVD. I mean, I, you know, uh, I'm not confused about, the, you know, the movie's the movie and like my life is my life. It, uh, you know, the movie's a, a possible, you know, it's a creation of, uh, of, uh, things. And it's interesting, you know, I, I mean, I, maybe it enables me to see myself the way others see me a little bit, you know, it's interesting, but I, I don't, I'm not doting on it. I'm a little afraid to get too, uh, locked into it or anything because, uh, Hey, I'm, I'm me over here, <laughs> you know, but like the Fred Parnes did a really good job of making a movie. And I think the thing that's interesting about it is that, uh, it's not exactly like I'm a real mainstream type character, but he has na made a movie that all kinds of people can watch from people that are, uh, aficionados of music to, uh, people that never followed this kind of music. And that's the level of his storytelling is he's able to bring everybody in. That's a pretty great talent really. So I think he's a pretty good filmmaker. Yeah. I thought it was beautifully done. Um, before we hit record, we talked a little bit about San Francisco. You played there as a street musician and you did it a lot. And I haven't had a chance to read your book, but I'm going to um, about that experience as far as you can get without a passport from uh, 2006. Tell us about how playing that many times on the streets of San Francisco, busking, doing those performances, how did that help you with your playing, songwriting, performing? Well, one thing that it does is that uh, it strengthens you in a way because it, it takes so much, you know, it's like 15,000 pounds of pressure against you to pull out a guitar and start singing on a street corner, even if you're a really good musician. Just doing that alone breaks like some sort of uh, social rule, it seems, uh, in a way. Um, though it is an accepted thing in San Francisco that people play on the street, still to go out there and start doing it, um, you all of a sudden feel kind of naked and exposed and like you're like... Uh, bothering people out on the street and you know uh you really try so that's one thing and, and it um two like i learned to deal with all kinds of different people in the public i was out there so much i mean it's that thing about ten thousand hours or whatever you know it was probably something like that and so uh it dealt with all kinds of situations and all kinds of states that i was in and playing 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 until your fingers, you know, are just torn up and, you know, you've lost your voice and then you come back, you know, uh, you know, and uh, perseverance in the face of all that. And it's cold out there on the street in San Francisco, too, and you had to play through all sorts. So they're just all kinds of different things. But finally, like the people walking by and like the getting on their wave like this, they went by so quickly 
and and to sometimes get on a thing where you would get on a roll and people would be coming in, you would, they would tune you in as they went by because you were on some sort of wavelength, and it it was more kind of subconscious, but you did learn from that, and so that's one of the lessons you know is that you learn that. Uh, I remember one lesson was like we'd have a big crowd, you know, like we'd get every once in a while we'd get a bunch of people out there to be a crowd, and then uh, I don't know if I told the story in the movie. See, that's the problem. Like I don't know what stories I told. I t- I told a lot of stories and they're not in the movie and I can't remember which ones they are, you know. But one one of the facts of the matter was was like people would like back in the day they would throw a joint in your guitar case. You go, okay, we're gonna take five. We'll be right back. You know, you go around the end of the alley and you smoke the joint. And you come back out, and they're still there. They're waiting to hear more music, and there's like a crowd of people there, you know. Uh, you know, some have left, but most of them have stayed, like in this particular thing I'm thinking of. But we're high, you know, and we come out and we start playing, and like we're like playing the best music we've ever played in our lives. It was so great. We were like really high, and we're just killing it. And we look up, and everybody's left. And it was <laughs> it's a little lesson about about uh, your your psycho your psychic state uh, as it replaced it. Is it just, you know, what it felt like it did was it, it, you know, your vibe out there is critical to like being people feeling like they can be out there with you. And uh, it affected that somehow. You know, I mean, I'm not against getting high to play music, but that's what I'm talking about. You're describing maybe learning how to play in front of a tough crowd or just in tough conditions. Like if you can stand out on the street and perform for people, is it a lot easier to do it in a club? Is it easier to do it in a club? Yeah. No, but <laughs> not necessarily. But we we graduated from that down to this other club called the Coffee Gallery, where I used to get duck in there too, you know. And that was definitely not easier. They people would throw things at the Coffee Gallery. There was like a real drunk kind of motorcycle uh, gang mentality going on in there. And it was a bar, the Coffee Gallery. I don't know where the coffee thing. I never. I don't think I ever saw anybody drink coffee in there. My whole time I was in there, but. Uh, so that was a you know trial by fire too. I mean, people would throw bottles and shit, and so uh, you know that was crazy. But then sometimes it would be cool, you know. And like I played with this guy Mike Wilhelm there from the Charlatans. We played in there a lot, and uh, I saw a lot of different people uh, play in there. But clubs are you know it's all different, you know. But but this but when I was like you know the th- great thing about being able to be a street musician was it enabled me to make a living as a musician, very or scratch a living as a musician. And be devoted to playing music a hundred percent. You know, mm-hmm. I live very, very on the edge of life. You know, but that's what enabled me to just. I threw everything over and I just did this. I didn't have like a plan B or like a a job or anything. You know, so like that was my job every day. Is I get up and drag my guitar. You know, drag myself out to the corners and be out there from noon till two or something. You know, what and, were some uh, of the songs you were playing at that time, Peter? Uh, what was you know, what were the ones that would keep the crowd from walking away? Well, there was, I mean, there were a lot of different things that were popular at the time, but, um, uh, I mean, we played so much material. The stuff I liked to play was like, I played like, uh, uh, Sunny Land by Elmore James. And I played, uh, um, Secret Weapon by, uh, what's that cat's name? Lazy Lester. And, uh, I'm ready, you know, stuff like that. But then I also did, you know, so I did that kind of stuff. And then we had like this band, we had a, a subset of like the, the well, like one of the things that was happening on the street is me and this guy, we we did all 13th floor elevator material. So that set would be like, um, you're going to miss me. 
levitation, slip inside this house, slide machine, all this kind of crap. And uh, let me take you to the empty place of my fire engine. We used to play that when fire trucks went by. <laughs> but, you know, we also did Memphis, Tennessee. That was really popular. You know, a lot of, a lot of Chuck Berry, man. Yeah. A lot of Rolling Stones. So it's not easy living on your own. Beatles, we had version. There's that one in the movie of us doing the. That movie has us doing. It's not easy about the Stones, but they they used the one of us doing one after 909, which I just always thought was like a, like a. You know, we played a lot. A lot of the material when you play in the street back in those days, you didn't play um, electric very often. We went electric after a while out there, but um, you had to play stuff that that you could hear the rhythm from the guitar coming through. Um, we had two guitars and they would usually double the rhythm. And so you could hear like, you know, like the Chuck, Chuck Berry type things were like really, uh, effective because dun, 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 you know, you could hear that, you know? Yeah. Uh, if I, if I recall correctly in, in a scene in the movie, it shows you tallying up your take from, uh, playing out on the street. And I think it was $2 65 cents. Um, I mean, I remember living that scene. <laughs> because that guy filmed us, but it was like the worst night ever for playing on the street. Like, so that was like possibly like the worst night that that guy, he, that he had everything lined up to make the movie, but then it was like this really overcast night. It was a week night and it was just not a good time. It, it might've been in October or something. I can't remember, but whatever it was, um, it was cold and it was wet ish. And, you know, there weren't crowds of tourists out or crowds of people really out doing stuff. So the the take on that was pathetic. And I remember I remember standing there thinking, you know, I can either smoke cigarettes, drink a beer or have a slice of pizza. <laughs> you know, I was like, one to pick one, because that's all you're going to get until tomorrow. You know, I think I went for cigarettes, but but uh, that's how it went. Uh, he bought us a bottle of wine, you know, uh, so that's the deal, you know. Sometimes it would be you'd be at the mercy of the uh, of the um, traffic out there, and uh, there were difficulties, you know. And sometimes it'd be fantastic. You'd be out there, and there'd be like big crowds of people and people party. It was usually when there was like a street party going on. The summer would be fantastic, but then usually what I would do is play days down at Fisherman's Wharf where all the tourists were, and then at night we'd come up for the nighttime crowd at. at uh, Broadway and Columbus, you know. Yeah. But sometimes Union Square. I mean, I played on the street down in Mexico. I played on the street in Los Angeles, a lot of different places. But the best place really was just like playing at North Beach. So we noticed, we took a look at one of your set lists, and I'd love to talk to you about that set list. But it seems as though you can get away with just you and your guitar and making your way across the country um, talk a little bit about not needing necessarily a backing band, lighting technician, video screens, and and all of that. It, and it also looks like no two set lists are ever really quite the same. Talk about how you put together the songs that you play, and can you just basically go from town to town, just you and your guitar? Yeah, well, here's the thing, man. It's like I come from a period of music when uh, that when solo players was really a thing. And so... It really was a, a main part of entertainment. So you'd go out and you'd see like, a, I mean, I remember going and seeing James Taylor in 1969, I think it was, or something. Wow. He was just solo, you know, and he'd be great. He was a great guitar player. He had really good songs with his first couple of albums and he was great. 
Or you'd see John Hammond Jr. solo, and he'd be rocking the house, stopping his foot and blowing this incredible harmonica while he played 12-string guitar, and he was great, you know. Uh, I saw Dave Van Ronk. I saw Laura Nero play solo. I saw White and Hopkins play solo. Um, Sonny Terry played with, like, one other guy. You know, I saw Simon and Garfunkel, just the two of them, playing a gig. And so well, this is what I when I was a kid, you know. And so it seemed like something to attain to, especially to blues singers. And uh, I was really into, uh, I loved Lightning Hopkins. I loved um, John Hurt. When I left Buffalo, I, didn't, I still hadn't really found out about uh, much about Robert Johnson or um, Mance Lipscomb, but I just, I was turned on to those by Michael Wilhelm when I got out here to California. And, and those guys were all solo players and they all played great. The thing that, and they played dynamically, like a lot of those people, like for example, John Hammond Jr. or, you know, they, they did a real dynamic thing. I mean, one of the best shows I ever saw was Arlo playing with Pete, just the two of them. So it's a folk um, tradition, but it's also a blues tradition. It's, and uh, it's not really mainstream anymore. But I have the capacity to go out and do it, and uh, I make a big – I turn it up loud in the club, <laughs> and I tip my guitar tuned down so the low strings are real low, and the high strings are still kind of where they're at. So it gives you – like I have a very full sound, and I've I'm just been doing it for years, so I, I know how to like uh, – you know, keep a couple things going at the same time. I mean, you listen to a Robert Johnson record or something or John Hurt and like, you know, it sounds like two guitars because the bass is doing one thing. And the, so, you know, that's kind of the thing. And then, uh, but really a lot of it, it's just the song. And like the songs are like movies, you know, you're, you're, you're casting them out on the room and you want to have it clear. You want to have it loud enough. They can feel it. And it's not just like some sort of uh, inward bound, uh, you know, uh, it's not necessarily not inward, but but it's not introverted. It's a big sound that can be entertaining to a whole room full of people. And so I like doing that. I played with bands for, I played in bands before I left Buffalo, and then I played in bands again for about 11, 12 years uh, on the West Coast between the Nerves and the Plimsolls. And then I, I just wanted to go to this th- thing I really love, you know. It's complicated, but remember T-Bone said to me, you're good at it and you can do it. <laughs> so you'll be all right, you know, <laughs> you know, which I think he was accused. Of, it was like, you know, you're going to, you'll serve, you know, you will survive like the Grateful Dead song. You know, part of its survival, part of the reason Woody Guthrie played solo all the time was because he couldn't afford a band. I can't always, I went on, a, you know, I'll tell you the last thing I'll say about it is that uh, I was out on a tour with a band in 1989. That's the last time I really took a band coast to coast and uh, it was the blue guitar tour and it was a fun tour and, but somebody had made a bad deal on a van that we'd rented, you know, and it was really expensive. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, we should have just bought the van, <laughs> you know, I, like I was unaware, you know. And so we um, I, so that tour broke up. We put, you know, at one point we put, opened up a show for John Lee Hooker. I opened up for him solo with the bass player left. And like I was just with the drummer and like we continued on with the tour. And I got home and I'm looking at the bills and I owe, I've been on tour all year. And I and now I got to go. I still owe money on a lot of the, the gigs were well attended. You know, their clubs were packed like in Austin and uh, Philadelphia and, you know, everywhere. You know, it was really good. But some, oh yeah, and then what happened was I was can- I had to cancel some shows because of smoking. I lost my voice. Everybody in the band's chain smoking Marlboro like all day long in the van, you know, like the whole everybody. And so I, I by the time we got out to the East Coast, you know, we were right in front of Hurricane Hugo too. I remember, I think that's what it was. 
and and uh, I lost my voice, and now I'm paying everybody to sit in a hotel room and and and, and leaving a and leaving some guarantees on the table, you know. And so I had to get one of those shots that makes you sing like James Brown, you know. And I got that, uh, <laughs> you know. Then you turn into a pumpkin after three days. But but I had to go back. I got home. And I had to go back out on the road, and I talked to my agent, and I went out on the road solo to pay the bills from the band tour. And I did it, and then I go like, "This is crazy, man! I'm out here working, paying off all this thing, but I'm actually, you know, coming out." I mean, so that's another thing. I came out ahead, you know. I love solo music. A lot of my records are people playing solo. I'm looking across the room here. I got my Jimmy Yancey record over there, and you know, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe they're not all solo records, but a lot of them are, you know. And 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 uh, it's just kind of where I'm at. You know, looking at your tour history, I wanted, I paid specific attention to the venues you played, a lot of small, intimate clubs. Some of them I was very familiar with and, and some not so much, but there always seemed to be rooms that seat a couple hundred, very intimate. Some well-known places like McCabe's in Santa Monica. There's the the Post at East River in Fort Worth, the Makeout Room in San Francisco, some of, some of the more recent ones you've done. What one in uh, San Francisco? Uh, the Makeout Room. Oh, yeah. Okay. Tell us about the experience of playing in those intimate rooms and what that's like and kind of the, the ability it gives you to connect with the audience that doesn't exist in a larger venue. Well, when I was with the Plimsolls, we were playing big packed rooms. You know, they were still their clubs a lot of the time. But then we started playing some of these sort of festivals. And the bigger the place, you know, finally we did some shows with Tom Petty at a... Uh, Mountain Air Festival, for example, and there was like I don't know, like I don't know how many it could have been a hundred thousand people there for all I know, and you're just so far away from everybody. I mean, and it's like daytime. I was looking out, like Betty would play at night, but we were like the opening act, and we're out like, the, and you're looking out there, and it's just like you know, you're just seeing like all this insane stuff going on out there, but you're just like kind of disconnected from it. It's not, and you could feel as you played like that you would get. You know, certain things would get a response from this kind of crowd, like, oh, you know, but, <laughs> you know, way out there, you know. I remember one time uh, a performer was telling me, you know, you find your pockets of people out there in the audience and you play to them out there, the people back there by the tree back, you know, or whatever, you know, whatever, you know and uh, there was that. So you felt, in a way, it's a lot easier to play a gig like that than it is to play um, McCabe's or to play... Uh, you know, these clubs you just mentioned, the post or something, because like the deal is that uh, it's a lot more intimate. Now, for some reason, like I, I that's my, my really what I have excelled at. And I've never, you know, I pack out those kind of clubs when I play them. And like generally, uh, it's a great feeling. You know, I don't use a set list like you were asking before. Mm -hmm. You know, I have an idea in my head, kind of of a general set sometimes for a tour that I'm, you know, that I'm the songs that I'm interested in doing. I don't really have like a big super hit that I have to play all the time. I don't always play a million miles away. And uh, I do sometimes. And uh, I just feel it out. Generally, there's like things that the set I'm trying to put across. Like right now, I'm trying to put across the Dr. Moan piano material. And I, I do that at, at a certain point in the set. And it seems like it goes really well at that point. But there's a thing that goes on. It's like a relationship. It's like a... You know, there's a thing that goes on between an audience and a room like that, and and it's a two-way thing, and it vibrates and it it you know it, it's got a life to it. Uh, it's got it's like you know it's like when you touch your dog or you touch a horse and you know the horse is alive, or you touch a dog or you 
you know, you know, you touch your girlfriend, you know, <laughs> you know, you feel the the vibration of life, you know. That's something you don't really feel that as much at those big places. You feel it at these little joints, and so you know, uh, I think for a lot of people, it's really gratifying, but it also is still more difficult. Like the first time I played McCabe's back in 1984 or whatever it was. Um, I was used to packing out clubs, playing rock and roll with the plimsolls and always having the volume, you know, the wall of sound, you know, literally like a wall of sound. And then, you know, the energy, the forward motion of it, the other guys, you know, the crowd, you know. And then all of a sudden I met McCabe's. It was a sold out, you know, we did a number of sold out shows there as my solo show. First time I really played solo since the early days before the bands. And it was so terrifying to be on stage like that. It was so naked, but I, I loved it. But it was like... It was like throwing a cat into a tub of, co of cold water or something. It's like, ah, you know, it was very intense because you could feel and see. And you had people on your wavelength and they're just sitting there. They're not going to get blown away by the lights and the smoke and the, and the uh, volume coming out of your marshal and all that stuff, you know. So that was another thing, you know. Yeah. I remember one time early on, I talked to John Hyatt on the telephone. We were talking one day way, way, way back. And he's like, yeah, when you play solo, man, it like really plugs you into your worth of what you're writing. Talk a little bit about Dr. Moan. And, and you mentioned, you know, the piano part. The set list that we were looking at was from April 12th. And you dropped like five tracks in a row from Dr. Moan. And they just, when? It, this was uh, April 12th, uh, Vienna, Virginia. Oh, this year, yeah. Yeah. And it really worked well. And I don't know of any other artist who could drop five songs from a brand new uh, album, especially like back to back like that. Okay, well, here's the thing. Um, the the songwriting thing, it's not really like when you're out there doing these kind of things, it's not really like you're recreating your records or anything. And so people don't even like I can go on tour and like even when I don't have a new record out, it doesn't really exactly matter. It seems to sort of bump it up a little bit when you do, but I'm getting more play on this record than I have for a long time with a record. But, but, and that's because Sunset Boulevard's doing a good job, Sunset Boulevard Records. But it's in the songs, it's written into the songs that they can be heard. The trick of it is like to write a song and people can hear it the first time and it gets them, but the sec they can hear it a second, third, or tenth, or a hundredth time and it's still got some value. You know, that's what you hope for and, and that it's something that they live with. You know, and so that's the art of songwriting. And so uh, there were certain songs off Dr. Moan that like I felt I didn't really want to put into the set right now. They're better to be heard on the record because they require a, a lot. Like if you wanted to listen to the last song on Dr. Moan in the middle of a set, I think it would almost be too much until uh, maybe I need to learn to perform it better or something. But it's a song with a lot of words. It's called Brand New Book of Rules. And I'm glad that it, when it's on a record, you can like play it again or tune it in or not you know whatever but live i was afraid that you know i wanted to have the ones that really just would carry i felt could carry themselves so uh i mean i think that song carries itself and it could eventually uh, be a song like until a hotel is a song that i never thought would be a, um, a live favorite you know how could it be but it, it ended up being one uh, and it developed into this new kind of arrangement from where it originally came from it's the songwriting. It's the line by line. You know, when I'm writing a song like, you know, Until the Hotel or some of these songs, like, I don't even know where it's, you know, I'm I'm listening too, you know. And so, like, I remember writing that song and it was like, 
you know, the f- first line came, and then you go, oh my God, what's going to go with that? And then, oh yeah, and then you write the second line, like, wow. And then it goes to, the, you know, the third line, you get the third line, and like the whole thing just looks like, it was like one of those card tricks where you turn the cards over one by one or something, you know? And uh, I would just wait for the, you know, you you're, you want to get all the right lines in there. You know, it's got to be, you got to tune it in from wherever it's coming from. You you can't make all that stuff happen really as much as you can let it happen. And and uh, that's what, that's kind of the art of it. I'd like to name some of the musicians and songs you've covered in, in some of your recent shows and just get your thoughts in a few words of, of about these artists and songs. One, one song that comes up a lot is Memphis Minnie's Bumblebee. Yeah, I mean, I love that song. Um, I love her version of it. I love some other songs by her, too, but I, they're not good for me to do. The version on that song that really got me going on it was Honey Boy Edwards' version. And I saw him play when he was about 92 or 93 or whatever he was at this place called Cozy's in the Valley. And uh, it was really great. He's like 92, and he's like playing electric guitar, and he's like... He's got this young guy driving him around. That guy's like, you know, 70 or something, you know. And uh, <laughs> that was a harp player. And uh, they played, they were incredible, you know. And he, and his version of Bumblebee kind of kind of was where I hit, it hit mine. Another song you've played a number of times is A Pair of Brown Eyes by the Pogues. Yeah, I, it's on my first album. So we're up in a hotel room, and it was me and T-Bone, uh, Victoria Williams, uh, Bob Newirth, and Elvis Costello. And uh, it was like 1985, maybe. And everybody's passing around the guitar and singing songs, you know. And Elvis had just produced... One thing about Elvis singing in a hotel room is it was like seeing him at the, like, you know, the Greek amphitheater or something, you know, he's just in a hotel room and he's like two feet from it. But he's like, no, you know, just like super, like no holds barred performances, you know, just like, Oh my God, your hair is like blowing back. He played like indoor fireworks and all this kind of stuff. And a uh, beautiful mistake. I think he played a few of those songs and, uh, and then he says, well, I've been working with this band, you know, and he told us some stories about it. And then he played pair of brown eyes and, and I was just, blown away by the beauty of the writing of it and so I thought well you know it kind of reminded me of like if you would have heard the record wasn't out yet in America and if you heard like Mr. Tambourine Man or something and had the idea to like put electricity to it like that's what we thought we'd do with this Pogue song because we, we heard an acoustic from him and then we also heard the Pogue's version of it which is very beautiful I asked Elvis if he could help us get an okay, because before the record was released, you have to get an okay. Back in the day, I don't know how the law works now, but I think it's automatic once a record is uh, out. But back in those days, it was, you know, the record wasn't out yet. So we had, Elvis got the okay for it, we got it, and we cut the record with, uh, we put together the band, and we were saying, me and T-Bone, we were saying, well, let's use the group. You know, basically, it's like the people that recorded 5D and... Uh, Eight, eight miles high, you know, it's like, you know, 5D was like v- Roger McGuinn, uh, you know, one of the great drummers, but we got Jim Keltner and we got Roger, we got Roger to play guitar and Van Dyke Parks who played organ on 5D. And so that's what we did. That was our version of um, Pair of Brown Eyes. But Keltner, 
you know, I ran into Keller the night before. There's like this big crazy party with like the Tom Petty people out somewhere. And we were just like on the edge of it. And I go in this room and Jim Keltner's in there and I'd never met him before, you know, I'm like, wow, man, I'm like, I really, I'm a really big fan of, uh, I don't want to be a soldier, mama. I don't want to die, you know? And uh, he's like, oh, hey, man, nobody's ever said that. You know, fuck, you know, fuck, you know. I mean, I must have been pulling my leg because that's like the greatest drum track in the world, you know? But uh, but I'm all enthusiastic. I'm like, yeah, we're recording tomorrow, man. Come on down to the session, you know? Because we were going to record it without drums, I guess. I, I can't quite remember what we were thinking, but... but uh, so he goes, yeah, sure, man. So I get there the next day and I'm kind of like hung over and I'm coming out of it. And I walk into the studio and like, oh my God, all Keltner's drums are set up here. There's like all these drum cases. I'm like, oh no, you know, like how I asked him to come and he came and like, this is a waltz, you know, how are we going to do it with Keltner, you know? Like I had no, that's how stupid I was that I didn't, you know, naive I was, I didn't really understand. I mean, Jim Keltner's there and he's like, Hey man, you got to copy the lyrics, you know? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. I give him the lyrics, and he he just puts the lyrics up on a music stand. Now he's ready to go, and he just played the most brilliant marching waltz time thing on the full kit, you know. And uh, uh, he just blew my mind, <laughs> you know. And he had he knew he it was an incredible session. It was really fun. I was in you know I was I, I was in way over my head that day, you know, with all those people, and um, it was really exciting. Tell us about growing up in Buffalo, New York. What was your introduction to music? To was it buying forty fives? Was it listening to your family's music? What What was your comfort food back then? I was born in fifty four. My big sisters were born in forty four and like forty two or something. And so uh, I was. There was a big gap in there for various, you know, I won't go into, but but uh, they were teenagers. Love and rock and roll in 1957 when I was three. So I grew up in this house and I inherited all their singles. Uh, their single collection, uh, Fats Domino, you know, on 78, Chuck Berry, uh, School Days back with Deep Feeling, Link Ray, uh, Rumble back with the swag, uh, Raunchy by Bill Justice. I don't know what that was back by Elvis, all those Elvis RCA singles. Um, and then corny things like uh, George Hamilton the Fourth, a Rose and a Baby Ruth, you know, just the stacks of these records, you know, those Cordettes, mm-hmm. Sandman, uh, and these were like my play things when I was little. And then the first album that they brought into the house, the first rock and roll record, was the uh, Cadence uh, Everly Brothers record. I think my sister got that for her sixteenth or seventeenth birthday. So I was like three, but I, I, they went away to college, and uh, shortly. They both left pretty early, like probably 58. Uh, my playthings was there was like this drawer and you could pull it out and all their singles were in there, you know. And so I, I was really into that and all the 78s. And there was also like uh, – and then at some point in there we had built – my dad built a hi-fi system in the basement. I thought he was making a boat, he told me. But it was a hi-fi, like just a one-speaker hi-fi thing. It sounded great. It was all done with components, you know. He, he just bought – you know, he just put it all together himself. And gave it to the family for Christmas, maybe 57. And the first record we played on that was uh, Harry Belafonte, you know, the Calypso record. Love that record. So that's what I was all into. And then, so I got all these rock and roll records. And my sister's coming back through with like, you know, Sherelle, Soldier Boy. And um, we had Ray Charles Twist, which actually was a re- reissue of like a, 
and probably like a live. I don't know. It's the record that had. Uh, Tell me how do you feel when your baby loves your best friend or something? You know, like, I'm like a little kid. What I'd say was on that record, and uh, and um, so I grew up on those records. My mom liked F- Frank Sinatra, my and uh, Nat King Cole and Ella Fitzgerald and Dinah Washington, and uh, my dad just liked Dixieland. Here's a weird story. So, uh, so my dad, you know, he was like really into like you know Tommy Dorsey. He was into. Uh, Benny Goodman. Benny Goodman, Louis Armstrong, Cab Calloway. Sure. All this kind of stuff. And so he liked the Billy Butterfield, right? And so <laughs> so uh, my dad, you know, uh, so I'm in the house one day and I'm playing this record called All These Blues by Paul Butterfield Blues Band up in my room or something, you know. So now it's like the 67 or 66 and I'm listening to records. And I got into Paul Butterfield Blues Band. And the reason I got into that was because my sister came back from college with a copy of Sing Out, one copy of it. And I inherited it and started pouring through that, reading all this different stuff about the Lightning Hopkins and the Blues Project and the Paul Butterfield Blues Band and Muddy Waters and Ramblin' Jack Kelly and all this. It's all on this one issue, you know. And, uh, I started, it had, it had the music to Kill for Peace by the Fugs in it. And so I started putting Kill for Peace by the Fugs in like every set I did. I was like the only kid that was like 12 years old that was doing Kill for Peace in 66 in Buffalo. One thing, one of the shows that was mentioned in the documentary was you seeing Lightning Hopkins when you were still relatively young. Was that um, another kind of pivotal live experience for you? Yeah, it was. Uh, what stood out about that show that, that stands with you today? His presence, his storytelling. He would talk, he talked a lot. And um, he had an incredible presence and look. And I'd never, he, he, and, and sound, of course. He was already legendary to me at that point. So I, I couldn't believe I was actually getting to see him, you know. Uh, I didn't know much about what the facts of that all were, but I was far away from home. I had to hitchhike over to, uh, I hitchhiked over to Boston from Buffalo and it had taken quite a while. It was an interesting trip because a lot of things had hit me on that trip. I heard a lot of different music when I was in a real, I was kind of in a real vulnerable state, you know, traveling. So, uh, it was a blizzard out and, uh, or a couple of blizzards in a row. And it was very uh, difficult and I, I actually spent a night in a Red Cross shelter in Albany, and uh, I went into a library to get out of the storm and listen to. It was the first time I ever heard uh, Cisco Houston or um, Jimmy Rogers or Skip James. And then um, I got over to Boston and heard Lightning Hopkins. Yeah, it was. It, it's one of those ones that really lives in my mind. It's like a, um, you know, one hundred, you know, just a one hundred percent moving, convincing performer with just alone with a guitar, I guess. I guess it was sort of like the version, like when I saw Paul Butterfield, he was looking with a big band, but when I saw Lightning, he was just solo, and it had the same impact, really, if not more. So the album, Dr. Monin's, has been out since March, and what comes next for you? I don't know. I'm home from the tour. The tour started in the beginning of April, so I went out April, May, June, and now it's almost July, and I'm home. I just, I mean, I would say that, like, Yesterday, I realized that the tour is over, you know, and so uh, I'm working on things. I got things, a lot of different things to I'm doing. I'm not, I'm not really on vacation. So 
I mean, I'm always doing stuff. And so I don't know what's next, though. It takes a while for things to add up. One thing I learned during the pandemic was that they add up on their own time. And, you know, forcing things to happen um, is okay, but not really. Like this Dr. Mo thing just fell together over a period of time, and and it was allowed to, like, get together the way it was supposed to. And I feel like, in a way, I feel like it's my best album because of that. Like, it just happened, you know. And uh, if you can do things like that, you're really fortunate. Uh, Everything doesn't always go like that. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's just so much to work at. As you get older, you start to realize, like, the time, you know, how much time do I have to, like, do the different things I'm trying to do. And so I'm trying to stay you know, stay on it, you know, I don't, you know, I got things I really want to do, but, uh, some of them take a long time, you know, um, so, yeah, but I, yeah, I, there's touring again in September and before then, uh, I made my wife, Denise Sullivan, um, has written a thing for the Bob Dylan center, um, uh, about Len Chandler and about the March on Washington. So we may be going out for the anniversary of the March on Washington to the Bob Dylan Center, so that's one gig. And then um, I think I start touring again early September, and I'll be out all fall. And then, so we'll see what happens before then. 